1: Gossip, heavy cross, three after four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Thanks heaps to Matt for an awesome burning vinyl. Well, on today's show, we speak with Professor Gilda Jayan from the Burnett Institute about an HIV cure, injectable HIV treatments and women living with the virus. And we also speak with Dr. Denton Callender. He's from the Universities of New South Wales and New York, and we chat with him about a male sex work study here in Australia. And of course, at 4.40, Jane Green returns in the studio from the Vixen Collective to talk about the campaign for sex work decriminalisation here in Victoria. While Professor Gilda Tasjayan is from Melbourne's Burnet Institute and yesterday I spoke with her about an HIV cure, treatments and women living with HIV. Gilda there's been reports that several people have been cured of HIV but what's really going on there? Are they just in remission? How does it work scientifically?
2: Right so I think um, it's probably a bit premature for at least talking about the London patient as being a cure Probably the best that we can say it's remission at this stage. And I think it's potentially exciting because it indicates that um, the first uh, individual, the Berlin patient, Timothy Brown, indicates it's probably not a fluke that that individual has been living uh, without HIV for about 10 years. So it's, it's basically not a fluke. And uh, what's going on there, if we look at the London patient, uh, we can see there are some parallels with Timothy, Timothy Brown. So these individuals have had um, bone marrow transplants, what's called the Delta CCR5 mutation. So the CCR5 is a receptor on white blood cells that virus, HIV virus uses to gain entry. So individuals with that mutation uh, tend to be resistant against HIV transmission. So they've, been, they've received um, um, cells from a Delta CCR5. The other thing that um, is common between the two patients is they've had graft versus host disease. It's a mild version of that. And basically what that means is that, you know, having an allogeneic um, stem cell transplant, um, there's probably a bit of a mismatch between the donor cells that were um, Uh, put into those patients and uh, the recipient cells. And so uh, the immune response is probably kicking in and killing in any um, any cells that have been left um, in that body, in the body, in the donor. So both of those in concert probably tell us or give us clues as to strategies uh, for developing a cure strategy, if you you know what I mean. So uh, what it actually tells us firstly, if we can um, target the CCR5 receptor, that might be a way of curing, but you'd have to make sure that you can get rid of that receptor in every cell that's susceptible to HIV. So you'd probably be thinking about gene therapy, CRISPR, something along those lines. And then the other clue that it gives us is that um, you probably might need an immune response, uh, sort of the immune response to target any um, HIV-infected cells that might be left in the body. So maybe, you know, you need both. So that's probably what's going on. I think it's um, really exciting news um, in terms of that, this being a way that um, you could... ..or a strategy or a cure strategy that you can roll out for everybody um, that is not a viable option. Um, and that's because uh, this type of treatment... Um, is is dangerous if you like Um, and you'd you'd only be using it in individuals who need a bone marrow transplant because they've got cancer and they've got no other options. So in terms of a tractable way of curing individuals, this is not a strategy but it does give us clues as to how we can proceed with um, cure strategies in the future.
1: What's dangerous about it?
2: Oh, with what what has um, these individuals? Yeah, look, you know... um, Stem cell um, bone marrow transplant is is not something that y- is you can do to individuals who are on antiretroviral therapy, uh, where their virus is controlled and um, you know they're doing really well. Um, it's dangerous because there's mortality associated with with transplants um, because of of graft-versus-host disease and, and all the treatments that they have and the conditioning that they have, you know, there can be mortality about 10 to 20%. So it's pretty much a last resort for these individuals. The other thing is that actually getting a donor match is, um, is difficult. Only 1% of Caucasians will have that Delta CCR5 mutation. So finding a donor with that mutation that is actually an allergenic match Will be challenging as well. So, I mean, it's 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 exciting. It tells us ways forward, the way forward. But it's not something that we're going to be rolling out um, to people living with HIV to cure them.
1: An injectable monthly HIV treatment is being developed. How far away is that from being a reality for people living with HIV?
2: It's probably fairly close. Um, At CROI, there were a few presentations. And these were um, open-label studies, so Phase 3. And, um, you know, the studies look quite promising. So uh, the ones that are available, the drugs that are available, are long-acting capodegravir and rilpivirine. And in that context, um, they've been looking at individuals who've been on suppressive antiretroviral therapy, um, so their, their virus... Um, load is undetectable for for a while at least six months and then they'll come in uh, with these long acting injectables. I don't know if you know how it works but um, it's about a couple of mils of um, these drugs into the buttock (laughs) and uh, but before they can do that um, they need to make sure that there's no adverse reactions due to the drug and that means that those individuals initially will go on oral therapy um, that contains those drugs to make sure there's no um, drug reactions. And then once that's fine, so they call that a drug lead-in, what, once that's all okay, then they'll get the injectables and, um, and they'll have uh, uh, the, the, the drug in their system for about a month. But what happens then is that if they don't come back for their second injection after a month, you have what's called a tail. So the levels of the drugs are going to be decreasing in the body, and that is problematic if the individual is HIV positive because you'll have suboptimal drug levels, which can select for drug resistance. So you need in, an individual who is compliant, who is going to take, you know, make sure that they go back and have their injection every month. Um, there can also be um, adverse side effects with other drugs, and it's important to remember once that you get that injection there's no going back, so it's in your system and you can't get it out for a month or more. So you need to take that into consideration. But having said that, um, it looks like individuals who have uh, participated in these trials um, have found it quite um, acceptable, about 80%. They prefer to take it than oral. I always like to say, you know, you don't have one size fits all. Some people might prefer to take um, tablets orally daily. But there might be individuals who might prefer um, the injectables. Uh, it could be more convenient for individuals who may be travelling and they don't have to um, carry their their pills around. And I think an interesting concept is that there are you know young women in Sub-Saharan Africa um, who might have their pills in their in their purse, and that that sound of the pills in the purse, you know, is recognised by their partners and. Um, uh, and there could be stigma associated with that, and thinking, well, what are you taking these pills for? So an injectable would be a discreet way of protecting or, uh, an individual who is HIV positive. So in terms of how far off we are, I mean, fairly close. Uh, but the question would be, um, how much would it cost? Um, and presumably, you know, for resource pool settings, it might be a little bit longer before it becomes available. But, you know, it's an exciting thing and it's great to have a variety of ways um, to be able to um, get treatment. It's also been looked at in terms of prevention as well. So individuals who are high risk of HIV infection and who are HIV negative, um, there are trials that are looking at um, getting a, an injectable to protect themselves against HIV instead of taking a pill daily.
1: So injectable PrEP.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. That's Gilda, exciting.
1: tell us about some of your current work regarding women and HIV. I know you're kind of at the forefront of, of that field.
2: Yeah, we're delighted to talk about that. So um, I guess in Australia, when we think about HIV, we probably don't think about women. But globally, um, individuals who are infected with HIV, women would be almost 50% globally um, of the 1.8 million that have been infected in 2017. And the majority of those individuals are actually in sub-Saharan Africa. And there's some incredible statistics like 7,000 women and girls get infected a day globally. So it's quite a big problem. And um, again, the statistics show that in sub-Saharan Africa, um, adolescent girls and young women are up to three times more likely to be infected with HIV compared to their male counterparts. And we know there are gender-based issues that are um, uh, causing that or or promoting that. So when you've got young girls that are having sex with older male partners are more likely to be infected with HIV. Uh, But there are also now, we're beginning to understand that there are biological factors that are also driving this increased risk. And remarkably, it has to do uh, with the microbiome. And in fact, the vaginal microbiome. So the microbiome is a collection of bacteria and viruses and fungi that uh, uh, colonize all surfaces of our body. And um, with these young girls in sub-Saharan Africa, they do have a vaginal microbiome, but it's not optimal. And uh, this non-optimal microbiota is associated with what we call um, genital inflammation, so subclinical genital inflammation. And that general inflammation results in um, recruitment of HIV target cells to the lower female reproductive tract and also um, diminishes the the, um, epithelial barrier or the mucosal barrier so that the virus has a greater um, chance of getting through that barrier to infect target cells. And so what we've been asking over the past seven years is, okay, right, so relative to these women with the non-optimal microbiota, you have women who seem to be protected against HIV and they have beneficial bacteria. And these bacteria tend to be what we call lactobacillus species. And these lactobacilli produce products, we call it, and one of the major products is lactic acid. And lactic acid does remarkable things in the vagina. It acidifies the vagina to a low pH of um, around 3.8. And this is an interesting fact that women are the only mammals that have acidic vaginas. And that acidity is important because it kills pathogens and viruses. Um, But we've also found that um, those lactobacilli and others, that the lactobacilli are associated with a non-inflammatory environment um, that would help protect against HIV. So we've been looking in the laboratory at the properties of lactic acid. We've shown um, that it is really potent at killing HIV in the test tube, um, better than just acid alone. Uh, we've also shown that if we take um, epithelial cells from the lower female reproductive tract, that lactic acid can dampen inflammation in that context. And then our collaborators have shown that this acid can kill the bad um, uh, bacteria in the, in the vagina, but not the lactobacilli. And so it's, it's a, a product um, that's produced by the microbiota uh, that has multiple, multiple effects. So what are we doing with these findings? Well, we are, tr- we are actually in the process of um, formulating a gel that contains this acid. So we can actually ask the question, can it work in women? All all these studies we've done so far are in the lab, in the test tube, if you like. And so the next step would be to take women who have um, these non-optimal microbiota and and, um, treat them with this acid to see, with a gel, to see if we can decrease general inflammation, if we can change the microbiome from a a non-optimal to a beneficial microbiota um, and and see whether, you know... uh, it does what we think, it you know, we hope it does in vivo. So what we've seen in vitro, we can see that it happens in vivo. And then that will set the platform for us to develop um, sustained release versions. I mean, we know with gels and with the uh, microbicide field that women don't like to, you know, dose daily with a gel, uh, but we do know from the microbicide field that... Um, Sustained release in the form of the intravaginal ring uh, would be the way to go. So, you know, something like a Nuva ring, which a woman can insert, won't be able to feel it, but that ring will release um, the lactic acid and uh, that would, um, for about a month, that's what we're thinking, and then that would provide a way to normalise the vaginal microbiota, decrease inflammation associated with HIV risk. And, of course, with these rings, you can add other drugs in there. You could add... um, an anti-HIV agent and, and maybe a contraceptive um, to have what we call a multi-purpose prevention technology um, to, uh, and bring to that will act at different, at different mechanisms. Gilda, so, thank you
1: so much for your insights. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing this incredible scientific knowledge that you have and, of course, for your incredible scientific work. It's really appreciated and thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR.
2: Uh, you're welcome. Delighted to be on and, and, and very happy to share uh, our knowledge on HIV.
1: Professor Gilda Tashjay Arm there from Melbourne's Burnett Institute. It's almost 20 after 4. You are on In Your Face on 3CR and here are the Lemon heads.
3: Don't you bring me down
1: The Lemon Heads there with Beautiful. It's uh 424. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, this week the University of New South Wales released initial findings from its groundbreaking study about male sex workers here in Australia. And yesterday I spoke to Dr. Dinton calendar about the research.
4: Well, we conducted a one-year in-depth exploration of male sex work in Australia with a little bit of a look internationally as well. And we were really interested in both the traditional offline ways in which sex work was taking place, but also some of its more modern online aspects as well. And, you know, there was... This is, was a quite a, a huge study, so we asked lots of different questions, we collected lots of different types of data, and we're still really analyzing it and trying to get a handle on things. But we were particularly interested in, you know, the diverse ways in which men were engaged in sex work today. So, often I think when people imagine sex work, they probably picture someone on the street, maybe soliciting from a car, but the reality is that Today, the vast majority is taking place online, and more than that, it's taking place in almost every corner of the Internet that you can imagine. So, you know, you have people who are um, developing online personas that they use to attract clients, maybe through traditional social media like Instagram. You have paid subscription services that people use to distribute sexual content through platforms like Patreon or OnlyFans. And then, of course, you have the more traditional online sex work spaces where people maintain profiles, they receive reviews, they host cam shows, they connect with potential clients. There's so much going on around the act of sex work itself, but that's really only part of the story. And we were really fascinated to be able to document the vast array of community-based activities that are taking place online as well. So. You have people engaged in advocacy, there's a huge Twitter uh, community of sex workers and their allies engaged in supporting the sex industry, you have people who share information, you have vast discussion forums, and you have some, uh, some support services that are engaged in all of these activities towards, uh, I think, trying to make sex work safer and healthier for all involved.
1: What did the study tell us about the uh, benefits decriminalisation would have on sex workers' lives?
4: Yeah, so this study added um, another piece of evidence to the, I think, quite considerable body of international evidence that suggests when you decriminalize sex work, you make it safer and healthier for all involved. So we spent a lot of time talking to male sex workers and their clients in pretty much every state and territory around Australia, and as you and your listeners might know, there are are different laws around sex work and different types of regulation in each jurisdiction and we encountered considerable confusion and concern around you know what those were and and what was okay in one state versus what wasn't okay in another and in particular there was quite a degree of a fear around police in particular seeking to entrap male sex workers uh, around things like condom use or non-use or where and when you could solicit and that sort of thing. So there's no question that regulatory frameworks can introduce a high degree of uncertainty that is part of why people maybe do things that put them at risk, whether it, we're talking about sexual health risk, personal safety, or just the the type of anxiety and stress that can develop when you're concerned about being arrested because frankly you're not sure what the laws are Or, even if you are sure, we see examples over and over and over again of laws around sex work being um, unfairly or inconsistently applied. So something that's okay one day with one police officer might not be okay the next. And all of this is an absolute recipe for for disaster when it comes to health and well-being.
1: How prevalent is bareback sex among sex workers here in Australia with their male clients? I'm thinking obviously male sex workers.
4: Yeah, so we didn't actually assess something like prevalence, which really takes um, quite a, it takes a larger and a different kind of study. But we did talk to people about their condom use practices and we found as in the general community that some sex workers male sex workers were engaging in condomless sex with their clients and some weren't it really depended on the individual as well as the individual scenario we know of course that there are new ways to protect yourself from hiv so uh, if your partner is on treatment or if you're taking HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, the likelihood of transmission is virtually non-existent. But as I said, in some states and territories, there are laws around condom use um, when it comes to sex work. And so it's clear from talking to to these guys that there's lots of different things that people are doing. um, But at the end of the day, they're paying very close attention to their sexual health and to the sexual health of their clients. So it's it's not a wild west here, as is happening in the broader community. People, uh, including male sex workers, are taking on diverse forms of prevention and safety.
1: What kinds of peer support do male sex workers access, and is it mainly informal?
4: Yeah, so Australia is really lucky, actually. It probably has, from my assessment, one of, if not the best, um, offerings of peer support for male and female sex workers. And, you know, you'll find in, uh, again, everything tends to be a little bit different in each state and territory, but in many of them you get a diverse offering of in-person support, um, free access to condoms and lube, um, peer support delivered either in person or online, uh, a host of information hosted uh, digitally, uh, and even in some, in some places, digital outreach. So. Uh, profiles that are hosted on male sex work sites to give sex workers an opportunity to to interact with these support services should they want them now. One thing we did know, uh, or did know, learn, I should say, from talking to sex workers as well as the organizations that support them, is that for the most part, male sex workers take quite a, um, you know, "don't call us, we'll call you" kind of approach to support. So, it's important that they know it's there when they need it. But for the most part, it's it's a more of a passive engagement. That being said, we we observed and we spoke with people who were involved in range of advocacy activities and there is um, certainly in the online space an opportunity for people to engage uh, with each other as well as support services, which you know is really important for, for combating some of the risks that are associated with sex work.
1: Victoria is the only state that doesn't have funded our peer support for sex workers. Did male sex workers tell you that that made a difference for them? Did you find that the study varied in Victoria because of that in any way?
4: That's a great question, and it, and it is too bad that there isn't funded peer support in Victoria. Uh, men in that state, with whom we spoke, didn't identify that specifically. As I've said, it's kind of a more of a passive engagement. But what we did find when we spoke to sex workers in states and where that kind of funded peer support was available was that they frequently referenced it as, as a as an opportunity or as a, a port of call for them if and when they needed support. So when it's there it's definitely being used, it's definitely seen as something of value. When it's not there you know maybe it's you can't miss something you don't know that you don't have kind of thing but it's clear that these kind of peer support models play a really significant role in helping support the health and well-being of sex workers and it's a shame in Victoria which from our study we discovered has the second highest number of male sex workers in any state of Australia following of course only New South Wales it's a shame that those kind of models and the funding for them haven't really taken off in quite the same way.
1: To what extent did your study focus on uh, drugs being the payment for male sex work uh, rather than money? Uh, What we used to call opportunistic sex work, I'm sure it's called something else now, but did that pop up at all where, where it's not cash that's the payment, it's something else?
4: Yeah, so we did. That is uh, that is a, a topic of growing interest among sex work researchers across the board, and it does seem to be more common among male sex workers compared to their female peers. And it's not always just drugs, but it might be, you know, a place to sleep or a new phone or, you know, there's a lot of, at the end of the day, we all pay for sex, right? We all, sex is an exchange in one way or another, um, but there can become sort of a gray area between well did that person just do me a favor or is that sex work and what we found from talking to guys is that they don't really view for the most part the exchange of things like drugs or a meal as a form of sex work for them it's just part of the negotiation of sex and that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing it just means that we have to be more creative in how we think about reaching those people because even if you don't see it as a form of sex work, the reality is is that it does meet our definition, and as a result, it, it carries with it some of the, the challenges that we might associate with the sale of sex. So we need to be able to reach those guys where they are. You know, we need to be able to, to speak to them. In a kind of language that makes sense, because we know that the vast majority of male sex workers in this country are doing so on a casual or contextual basis. So maybe they're getting offered uh, a bit of cash online, or as you say, maybe uh, they're engaging in sexual activity for things like drugs or other kind of uh, you know com- commodity exchange. It's it's not. Um, we didn't get a sense that this was a much riskier thing. But it's just a different kind of sex work that in turn requires a different kind of approach, particularly because these guys don't see themselves as sex workers.
1: I know you're still going through the study's findings and analysing everything, but is there anything from this particular study that's different to say what's been um, covered in the United States in relation to male sex workers?
4: Yeah, so it it actually is quite a bit different. I mean, there are similarities and differences. So I actually live in New York, and and I do sex work research there as well. And the the challenges that the communities face in America are, are strongly based in the legality issues so you can be arrested and there's a few high-profile cases that sort of come up every you know every year of that happening to guys who are involved in sex work in the United States and that has such a profound effect on basically how those communities are organized how support services are delivered and so on and, and all of that's been exacerbated by recent moves in the United States to implement legislation that uh, really undermines the digital spaces in which sex work has operated for a long time. So, those kind of issues are remarkably different and, and I think Australia for the most part should feel very proud and excited about the way in which sex work has been supported. Even though there's there's lots to be done yet and lots of ways things can be improved, uh, in a global sense, it's probably among the best. It m- might even be the best anywhere in the world and that is owing largely to the the uh, progressive legislative frameworks that are in place, even in states that don't have decriminalization, uh, it's common that legalization is the is the model. So you know that opens up huge avenues for support. That being said, we often think about, um, particularly in this digital age, if there's sort of a global community, or, and certainly there are global norms that become part of how male sex workers in the United States, in Canada, here in Australia how they organize themselves so as we see new forms of HIV prevention being rolled out around the world you know this is really shape, reshaping the language uh, the way in which people sell sex and that of course is filtering through these international um, platforms for sex work. So websites like RentMen, these are major international juggernauts that, that feature sex workers in you know, hundreds of countries around the world. And because they operate on an international level, they help develop international norms around male sex work that get taken up, whether you're in San Francisco or Sydney or Perth. Um, as I said, there are certainly some some variations between countries, but also some remarkable similarities. So it's been really cool to be able to, through this study, and, and it's something we're still doing, but be able to look at both the things that are unique to Australia, but also those things that are common internationally.
1: Does your study tell us anything about trans men who are sex workers here in Australia?
4: Yeah, so we were really excited, uh, and this isn't something we set out to do, but we were really excited early on to realize that our, our recruitment efforts had managed to engage with uh, not only trans men who sold sex, but non-binary people who were assigned male at birth that were selling sex. And The reason this was exciting is because although there is a vast, uh, vast body of research that has looked at trans women who sell sex, Trans men and non-binary people in particular have been virtually excluded from that research. So this is challenging and problematic because I don't think it's safe to assume that the sex work experiences of trans women are the same as trans men or non-binary people. And it's, you know, it's, it's a form of eraser when you don't include people in research or you, you assume that they, you know, that they don't, you don't give them a voice within these kinds of projects. So we uh, recruited a sample of, when we realized this was happening, we specifically sought out to engage a few more people uh, who would meet the, those uh, characteristics. And I think we ended up recruiting four trans men and two non-binary assigned male of birth people who were selling sex in the male sex workspace in this country. And uh, my colleague Ryan has con- been conducting analyses of these interviews uh, to understand the kinds of issues that, that this group face and, and how they might be similar or different to cisgender men who sell sex, trans women who sell sex, and so on. And, and we have been finding some, some very fascinating things, including the ways in which male sex workspaces don't really make... Um, we don't really make it uh, straightforward for trans men to sell sex, and there's a lot of uh, transphobia that goes on, including from clients of sex work, a lot of exciting opportunities for, you know, expanded education around these issues. There's definitely a market for it. So then our question becomes, how can we support trans men and non-binary people who are selling sex in this space? You know, what... What changes need to be made, particularly to the structures of these of the websites that they 're using, because the websites that they 're using just you know they, they can 't even fathom that there 's a trans man involved in this kind of exchange and and that 's again a form of erasure, but it um it's also quite a simple thing to change. So now that we're starting to collect and analyse these data, it's the first data set of its kind that I'm aware of internationally. It's, it's a small one, but it's a first step towards, I suspect, a larger project down the track.
1: Dr Denton Callender there from the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. It's 20 to 5. You are in your face on 3CR. Up next, Jane Green. In the meantime, though, we've got some more music. to 5 front interface on 3C. I'll be James. I am joined in the studio by Jane Vixen. Not Jane Vixen, Jane Green. It should be Jane Vixen. <laughs> yeah, that actually sounds quite good. That sounds great. <laughs> hey, look, the Herald Sun went sick on Wednesday, yeah?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's been a bit of an exciting week. We uh, had an article come out, which I have personally had a lot of feedback about, um, even though I had nothing to do with it. It was rather an exciting title called Alarm at Sex Dens. I'm not entirely sure what a sex den is. So I, when things come out that relate to sex work and the sex industry, I generally find out about it fairly quickly because people start texting me at all hours of the day to tell me because I'm the media rep of Vixen. So people started texting me and um, I got a copy of it and I thought a sex den sounded like something that people maybe had fun in in the 70s but apparently not. It's referenced by the Herald Sun to some comments made by Victoria Police, and uh, Victoria Police, or a representative of Victoria Police, was quoted as saying that every Melbourne suburb has an illegal brothel, which is
1: great argument for decriminalisation.
0: <laughs> yes, um, but also something that I'm not aware is an actual fact. So I um, I actually looked up um, how many Melbourne suburbs there are. And there are apparently about 600 suburbs in Melbourne. And I don't personally think that that there are 600-odd illegal brothels in Melbourne. That's a lot of sex workers. Yeah. I I, I, I don't think there are that many of us to fill up that many places. Um, And also, look, there's there's independent research um, and also government reports that say there aren't that many. Um, So it's not just my opinion. It's the government's opinion and researchers' opinions that there aren't that many places around. So it's a little odd. But I think when you're a sex worker, you often see things in the media that come across as perhaps a bit hysterical. Um, And not just relating to sex work, but I think relating to sex generally. I think anything that has sex in it um, is often a bit exciting to the media um, and gets a bit overblown. So I think... It's that phenomenon again, perhaps.
1: Last time we spoke in December, uh, you said that Attorney General Jill Hennessy had agreed during the election campaign when she was Health Minister to meet with sex workers. Has she delivered on that?
0: Not yet. And she's not Health Minister.
1: Well, she's Attorney General now. She yes. was Health Minister. So I, I think All it's even the more, more attractive for you guys to meet with her.
0: Yeah, I think it's even more important. Now she's Attorney General, so we'll definitely be following that up. Um, I think it's interesting given who is Health Minister.
1: Jenny McCarkoff. So I was going to ask you about yeah. her. Uh, has she made any overtures towards you? Have you approached her? Uh, obviously, her department would fund peer support for sex workers if it was funded in Victoria.
0: Yeah, if we ever got that. I mean, look, um, Jenny Makarkoff has previously refused to meet with sex workers on six occasions. So we'll certainly be asking to meet, but I think given there have been six prior refusals, I don't know how much hope we would be holding out, but we'll definitely be asking.
1: Have any Andrews Government MPs met with Vixen Collective since the state election?
0: No. Uh, but then again, we've actually had a lot on since the state election. Um, so we, ironically, in light of what's happened in the Herald Sun this week, have been putting a lot of energy into trying to build bridges with Victoria Police to make some inroads into having better pathways to reporting offences to Victoria Police, particularly with regard to physical and sexual assault reporting.
1: How responsive have they been this week to your approaches?
0: Um, We've actually, I think, um, had a better response than we've had in the past, but unfortunately we're looking to build a relationship where we're not building on a solid foundation, there's been a – I think very poor would probably be a, a, um, a light way of putting it. Um, we're not building on a foundation. We're building on a lack of foundation. Um, there's an extremely negative relationship between our community and police. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done. And while we've certainly had conversations with the police, incidents like this week – Um, Where there are statements made about our community that aren't based on fact um, and are in in the eyes of our community based on stigma and stereotype continue to erode that relationship where we really need to be working hard from both sides to build a relationship of trust.
1: Has Fiona Patton, the upper house uh, leader of the Reason Party here in Victoria, has she uh, given sex workers any assistance in relation to Victoria Police and uh, repairing and uh, building on that relationship?
0: Oh look, I, I think they're separate things. I think um, in terms of the decriminalisation campaign, I think it's not about any particular party. It's about all parties.
1: But I'm surprised she hasn't been all over the Victoria Police article in the Herald Sun.
0: Actually, I haven't heard from Fiona, but I'm certainly open to speaking with her. Um, But I think sex workers and our families and friends and our allies are in all electorates, and it's the responsibility of all MPs to ensure that workers' rights and safety and health Is looked after. It's not the responsibility of just one party. Absolutely.
1: Now, just speaking of electorates, we've got the federal election coming up in May. What activities can we expect from sex workers? Will there be any uh, candidates with perhaps unsavory views of sex work being targeted by Vixen and Scarlet Alliance and other activists?
0: Well, I mean, I think we need to support the candidates that support us, um, very much so. And unfortunately there are candidates that do get up at both a state and a federal level that have views that are toxic to the rights of sex workers and also views that are toxic to the rights of other marginalised communities that overlap with sex workers, so views that are anti-immigrant, that don't support the rights of people of colour, that are anti-trans, that are anti lgbtiqa plus community. Um, And that's a concern for everyone. And I think that allyship across marginalised communities is really important as well. And so we work closely with allied communities and community organisations.
1: We had Adam Pulford on the show a couple of weeks ago from the Greens. He's their candidate for wills here in Melbourne at the federal election. Uh, When pressed to uh, perhaps reassure sex workers with concerns Uh, Post Kathleen Maltzan controversy, he said uh, Kathleen has a personal position different to Green Party policy and then paused and we pivoted into something else. Now that's hardly a ringing endorsement. You must be happy with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it's a continuing frustration for us, and I don't understand how parties can continue to run candidates that don't support basic principles of human rights for all members of the community.
1: That was interesting. He didn't defend her. He kind of threw her under the bus, really, politically, I thought.
0: Good, and more of them should do it. Um, And, look, it's been upsetting for our community in the past when federal members of the Greens have come to Victoria and Consistently campaigned for Kathleen Moltson election after election, and with the federal election coming up, I think we'll bear that in mind.
1: There is a Greens uh, group in Richmond uh, that was basically, I think, set up, you know, as a as a response to your campaign mm. against Kathleen Moltson. Have they approached you at all?
0: Are you talking about the the? Um, Greens that were actually concerned about The issues within within their own party
1: Yeah, and they've set up this group This activist group or this advocacy group uh, uh, For progressive Greens Who are supporters of sex work I've seen them on Twitter Uh, Have they made any contact to Vixen at all?
0: Oh look, we've had contact Not just with that group But with a quite astounding number Of Greens members And I think it's great that they're holding their own party accountable And I think It's people that are involved with political parties should be motivated at that level to hold their own parties accountable and to be involved at that level in the formation of policy and to make sure that their parties are actually standing up for the policies, that they're not just um, policies on paper, but they're actually following through and making sure it happens in reality.
1: Monday, of course, here in Victoria was Labor Day uh, and lots of sex workers don't get the conditions that that other workers take for granted, uh, including health and safety conditions, because of criminalisation. Do you call on the union movement to offer sex workers more support?
0: Actually, I I have to say that the campaign around what happened with Kathleen Maltzen and the Greens brought us a great deal of support from the unions, particularly um, the Young Workers Um, union and um, union woman. So I think that's a great start, but we need to see more of that.
1: Yeah, I would have thought possibly um, a gesture or a public comment from Michelle O'Neill, the president of the ACTU, or the secretary, Sally McManus, would be appropriate. Um, It doesn't sound like they've they've approached you at all.
0: No, and and look, I, I think we can say that we have to make those reach out to those parties and do that work but at the end of the day we're a voluntary organization that runs with a small unpaid staff And when we say we need allies to reach out to us and participate in our Decrim campaign, what we're saying is we need those people to do that work and actually literally reach out and make that connection for us. And that's a critical part of our Decrim campaign. We need organisations and the people running those organisations and doing that work to make contact, to join us and to help us because we don't have staff on the ground, paid staff, we're all sex workers, Mo- the majority of us current full-time sex workers that are doing this in our spare time, that are sitting around between bookings doing the actual work to run a decriminalisation campaign. So,
1: And that's why it's disappointing the state government, with all of its resources, uh, hasn't even reached out to you for a meeting. Like I know you said Jenny McCarcos, the health minister's refused you six times, but Jill Hennessy, when she was health minister during the campaign, now she's attorney general. And I might add uh Minister for Work safe. I would have thought she would have come good on that promise. Uh I guess there's plenty of time.
0: No, I, I think there are so many things we need to make happen and may happen yesterday, um that yeah, I I think there's not enough time, really.
1: Jane Green, we're out of time. Uh, Jacob Case is up point. next with a with a Friday <laughs> rave. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't believe it's been three months since you're on the show. Uh, lots has happened. Uh, I was wondering when the Herald Sun would dive into this issue, and they have. But it sounds like you're building bridges with Victoria Police, so that's a good thing that's come out of this.
0: Yeah, we're, we're trying, um, and we will continue to do so. And look at this—we've now got a nice topic for conversation next time I meet with them about sex dens.
1: Four to five. You are on In Your Face on three CR. We are out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. Taking us out is Lily Allen with Apples, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
3: Do you remember way back when at my old flat we stay in bed all day having sex and smoking fat so much. Since then I wish we could Oh